go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. As you know, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount together. And today we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. What a sweet privilege to get to be to be in His Word together, to be meditating on the Word of God. What a sweet, sweet privilege. Before we read our text and pray, I want to mention just a few things. You know, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole gives us a really clear contrast between the world and the church. You have a really clear contrast between the world and and the church. Some have called the Summer on the Mount the Christian counterculture. So you've got the, all the cultures of this world, but you read Matthew 5 through 7, and Jesus says, This is the culture of my church. This is the Christian counterculture. And that really flies in the face of a lot of mindsets that are around today that says, Well, you know, the church is just like the world. We're just forgiven. Church is no different from the world. We're just happen to be forgiven. Well, the Sermon on the Mount flies in the face of that because this is saying, no, no, this is the culture of my church. This is the Christian counterculture. You see that in verses like, uh, we've already been there, chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. If you remember that little passage where the world is described as rotten and corrupt, but the church is the salt that pushes back the corruption. The world is described as darkness. But the church is the light that penetrates and disperses the darkness. And so something that's happened is last Sunday, we were in verses 38 through 42, speaking about uh, looking at retaliation and Jesus' teaching there. And today we're in verses 43 through 48, kind of closing out a certain section of the Sermon on the Mount. And one thing that's clear here from these two passages is that the the corrupt world, the dark world, is not just sitting back going, man, I'm glad y'all are here to help us. Okay, the the world is full of corruption and they, they despise and reject the salt. The world is darkness, but it's not saying, man, we're so glad, we're so glad the light has arrived. No, the world is darkness and the darkness hates the light. Now, last week we saw that because Jesus told us that if uh, someone evil comes and they slap you on the right cheek, so it assumes that Christians are going to face things like that, that there's going to be evil that backslaps you. And we see the same thing in our passage today. In verse 44, we're going to read the whole thing in just a moment, but in verse 44, Jesus tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That assumes something that we got to know that the Christian life is a life that has enemies and persecutors. In other words, the dark world, the corrupt world is not glad the salt is there to preserve. It's not glad that the light is there. But rather instead, it says that that they hate the light. They reject and they hate the light. So we're called to. In the midst of this dark, corrupt world that hates the light, 
We're called to be radically different. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount lays out for us. Matthew 5 through 7. That we are to be a radically different people. We're called to some radically different things. I mean, think about it. Last week, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't retaliate when they despise you. Isn't that radical? And if you think that's intense, wait till you get to today's passage. Where it's not only don't retaliate against your enemies, but I want you to love your enemies. It's a negative and a positive. The negative, don't, don't retaliate. Don't hate them. Don't be bitter against them. But then you've got that positive. Actually love them. Pray for them. And greet them, it's going to tell us. This is not only put off the old man that's tempted to retaliate against your enemies, but put on, but also in the passage today, put on the new man that's called to get down and wash the feet of your enemies, to love your enemies. It's radical, intense stuff. The church is different than the world. Let's read it. Let's read our passage, verse 43. For you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for letting us come to your word right now. Please give us insight. Open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law. God, please make us godly. Make us like you. There's a command in your word, Lord. You said imitate God. We're called to imitate you, Lord. Help us to imitate you. Let your words right now as we meditate on these things together, let them push back our sin. Let these words be killers of our sin. Give us light. Give us direction. Give us conformity to Christ. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to take this passage in four parts. I'll give them to you quickly. One, we've got the law relaxing religious leaders and what they have to say. That's in verse 43. Two, we've got the law loving Christ and what he has to say in verse 44. Three, we're going to answer this question. Why does Jesus hold his church to such a standard? And that's in verse 45 through 47. And really you got two answers there. Verse 45 gives you an answer. And verse 46 and verse 47 gives you an answer to that question. And then fourth, we have a summary statement 
in verse 48. It's in verse 48. So let's start number one. The law relaxing religious leaders. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So who said this? And we know from the context that this is what the religious leader said. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were, were saying. Now, what truth is being referenced in this statement? What did they say? They said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What, what truth is being referenced in that statement? And the truth is being referenced is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says we're commanded, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus has called in, in another place, the second greatest commandment. So they're referencing the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But what we see in this passage is a distortion of the second greatest commandment. And they do that by adding something to it that's not in the word. What did they add to it that's not in the word? What's well, right here in this phrase? And hate your enemy. Go back and read Le Leviticus 19.18. It says, love your neighbors yourself. It does not have the addition that they added to it, which is, and hate your enemy. This should be a warning to us about adding to God's word. We have warnings all over the scripture. Deuteronomy 4.2, a command, you shall not add to the word of God nor take from it. Proverbs 30 verse 6 is a warning. Do not add to his word, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. We need to fill that warning. Now, surely these people that are adding to the word of God, they found ways to justify themselves. Let us not be those that justify ourselves and in subtle ways add to the word of God, add things that are not there. And that's what they've done here. Now, how did they get to this false interpretation? This false interpretation. Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. How did they get to this false interpretation? And here's one thing they did. They narrowed the definition of the word neighbor. They narrowed the definition of the word neighbor. Think about that. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, Oh, okay. I just got to love my neighbor? Just the neighbor, huh? And so they narrow that definition. And, and, and I can decide who my neighbor is. And this means I don't have to love those that are not my neighbor. I just have to love those. In fact, I can, I can hate those who are my enemies. In fact, here I ought to hate those who are my enemies. You see how they've added to God's word. And therefore, they distorted the word of God. Now, there's a connection between verse 43 and 46. So verse 43, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, what were they thinking? Look down at verse 46. Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what, re what reward do you have? You see what they were doing? Oh, we just got to love our neighbors. Jesus says, if you just love those who love you. See, that's the view. I have to love those that love me back, but those that don't love me back. I have no obligation to love these people. And that's the false idea. That's the twisting of Scripture. Now, the same thing happens if you remember the Good Samaritan passage. You can go find that later and read through it. 
Again, Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18 in the Good Samaritan passage. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it says the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, asked the question, who's my neighbor? See what he's after? How, how, can, I, how can I relax this command a little bit? Who, who is my neighbor? To, to which Jesus responds by giving him the story that you're probably familiar with of the Good Samaritan. And the way that story ends is you go be a neighbor. Go be, not, not who's your neighbor, but go be a neighbor to everyone, everyone around this world. Go be a neighbor to all. And therefore you're commanded, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what, what could have prevented these scribes and Pharisees from distorting God's word? What are some things that could have prevented them from twisting the word of God to their own end? And I'll give you two things. One is a principle that they could have lived by as they study the Word of God. And it's this principle, let Scripture interpret Scripture. I don't know if you ever heard that. You have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. In other words, don't just look at one verse in the Scripture and do what you want with it. Don't look at one verse and build this theology off of it and ignore the rest of Scripture. Look at every verse in the Bible in the light of all other Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And they certainly did not do that. I'll give you an example. This is in Exodus. I'm going to read this to you. Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5. Now, if they would have read Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbors yourself... And read that scripture in light of this scripture, would they have come to their false conclusion? Listen to this scripture. It talks about their enemy. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. What? That doesn't sound like hate your enemy. Look, look at verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, that person hates you. You see his donkey lying down under his burden. You shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. Now, had they let Scripture interpret Scripture, would not Exodus, this verse in Exodus, uh, uh, push against their false interpretation that, yeah, yeah, love your neighbors yourself, but it also means you can hate your enemy. See, that verse doesn't sound like hatred of your enemy. Now, this principle, brothers and sisters, is very important. It's a very, very important principle. I want you to think about all the best heresies in the world have come out of somebody's quiet time looking at one verse of Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. If they'd have, played, if they'd have let that principle play out in their life, maybe they wouldn't have made this false interpretation. Now, a second, a second thing uh, that, that would prevent them from making this false interpretation would be simply a submissive approach to God's word. They needed a submissive approach to God's word. Now think about it. The Pharisees and scribes, they had a selfish approach to God's word. Well, how can I read this in such a way that it benefits me the most? They want, they were low relaxers. How can I relax this standard so that it's easier on me? Oh, love your neighbors yourself. That's really tough. You know, neighbor means this. I can hate my enemy. That's a lot easier. They weren't coming to the word of God going, I just want to obey you. Whatever you command me, I'll do. Wherever you send me, I'll go. That heart was not the submissive heart they had coming to the word of God. But we need that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23. It says this. 
Turn at my rebuke. And I'll pour out my spirit on you and make my words known to you. That's a submissive approach to God's word. Turn at my rebuke. God, my heart is I just want to be one that turns at whatever you say. Whatever you say, Lord, I'm ready to turn at your rebuke. And that kind of heart, it says, I will pour out my spirit on you and I'll make my word known to you. Isn't that a beautiful promise? You see, the Bible does not unleash its riches to the unsubmissive reader. And so if they'd come with a submissive heart, it might have changed things. Now, this whole section, I want you to think about all this section we've been in in Matthew 5. We've had those six uh, antithesis statements, right? You've heard it said, but I say to you this. And what we've got is Jesus dealing over and over and over again with false interpretations of the law. False interpretations of the word of God. And this needs to be a reminder to us that Grace Community Church, we need to be a people of the word of God rightly interpreted. We ought to be a people that despise, a people that hate the mishandling of God's word. And so this is an urge to us. This is a, this is a push to us. Grace Community Church, every brother and sister in this room, listen to me. Love the word of God and love it rightly interpreted. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day long. Let it be your heart. And read it repetitively. Read through the word of God again and again and again. So you're less likely to take one little verse out of context and make it mean what you want it to mean. No, read the Bible. Read Genesis to Revelation over and over and over. Brothers and sisters, study the word of God. Study to show yourself approved. Study the word of God like Ezra. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Be like those Bereans that received the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to see if what was saying was, tr- was true. Love expository preaching of God's word. Enjoy it. Benefit from it because it's the word of God being expounded. This is a reminder, all of Matthew 5, that we're to be a people... Of the word of God, rightly understood. Number two, we've got the law-loving Christ. And we see what he has to say about this in verse 44. So let's read it again. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this is that this is that negative positive. Not only don't retaliate against your enemies, not only don't hate them and don't be bitter toward them, but this verse says, pray for them and love them. Verse 47 is going to say, greet them, welcome them and embrace them, invite them in. Love your enemies. Now, there's an assumption here that I mentioned a moment ago. The, here, here's the assumption. Christians will have enemies And persecutors. It's just an assumption of the text. Christians will have enemies and persecutors. We see this in other places in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Matthew 10 22. You will be hated by all for my namesake. You will be hated by all. We see it in our passage right here. Love your enemies. It's assuming that Christians have enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you. It's assuming that Christians have persecutors. It's just an assumption here. Now, let, let me pose a question that, that may challenge some of you. Let me pose a question that may challenge some of you, and it's this. Have you created a form of Christianity that is decent and nice and has no enemies? Have you created in your own life a form of Christianity that's really decent, it's really nice, but it has no enemies? If you have, Jesus says this, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And he goes on to show how that's what they did to the false prophets. All men spoke well. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's what they did to the false prophets. Now, why would faithful Christians have enemies and persecutors? Why? Because of their holy lives, right? They live a life in such a way that it's really a condemnation to a dark and wicked world. Because of what they say, their proclamation, we're called to take the truth into the world. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and the world can't stand it. When we open our mouth and preach truth, when we herald that glorious gospel, and so the world hates us, and there's persecution that comes. So have you created a kind of Christianity that has no enemies, that has no persecutors? Now, if that question pricks you a little bit, I want to encourage you. Your response is not to go out and find you some enemies. To go out and find you some some persecutors. That's not your response. Your response, brothers and sisters, is, is to be faithful. To examine your life. Have you made some compromises with the world so that they really like you? Are you being faithful in holy living and proclamation of God's word? Just be faithful. And all those that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, but the point of what, that's the assumption, but the point of what Jesus is saying is this. How ought Christians to treat those enemies and those persecutors? And he says here, love your enemies. Love them. 1 John 3.16. This is how you know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. The definition of love there. Christ laid down his life. Brothers and sisters, love your enemies. Romans 5.10. It says this. While we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son. How did God treat us? We were enemies of the cross. And Christ came in love and laid down his life for enemies. He laid down his life for sinners like us. And we're to take that gospel and bend it out towards the lost world. Even bend it out towards our enemies. Love your enemies, it says here. Now, we need to beware of worldly views of love. Okay? There's all kind of worldly views of love. But one of them would be this. It would be this mindset of the way you love people is you just... You just be really, 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 really nice to, to everybody. And you never say anything that might offend. You be really nice and never say anything hard. Okay? But here's what we can't do. We can't take Jesus' words. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. You can't take Jesus' words and make them mean something that he never lived out. Think about Matthew 23. The one that says, love your enemies, looks at the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23. And he says, you, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. 
He says, you whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but inside you're like dead men's bones. So we can't lay this false layer of what love is. We're called to love our enemies. And Jesus obeyed that perfectly. So it means more than just be really nice to your enemies. Be really nice to the people around you. It means what? 1 John 3, 16. Lay down your life. This is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life. And then it turns and says, and you ought to lay down your life for others. That's 1 John 3, 16. Now it's interesting, verse 17 gives a practical example of this love. And you would think it would say, take a bullet for your brother. Take a bullet for him. But instead it gets more practical than that. It says, if you have this world's goods and you see this person in need and you close up your heart to him, How does the love of God abide in you? And so there's this practical love that we're to pour out towards our enemies. And it also says pray for them. In verse 44, Jesus gave us a beautiful example of that. When he's, he's literally hanging on a cross, his enemies have pinned him to a tree. And he's on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. He's praying for them. Acts chapter 7, you see Stephen, a martyr of the church, doing the same thing. They're literally stoning him to death. And he's saying, oh God, don't hold this against them. As stones pelt him until he dies. And he's praying for those throwing him. Church history is full of examples of enemies of Christ being one to Christ. By the love and the prayers of those that they persecuted. Number three, let's come to that question. The question is this. Why does Jesus hold his church to this kind of standard? Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Why does Jesus hold his church to this standard? And the answer is found in verse 45 through 47. And you really have two answers. Okay? Two answers are highlighted here. So number one, and it's in verse 45. Why does Jesus hold his church to the standard? Number one is this. So that his church would be like God. So that his church would be godly. Godly, like God. God-like. Christ-like. Jesus wants his church to imitate God. God is the standard of righteousness. And he wants his church to imitate the Father and put his character and love on display. Now right here, verse 45, look at it. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So why love your enemies? So that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, this does not mean that your adoption... You becoming a son and or daughter of God, this does not mean you earn your adoption by loving your enemies. You understand that? Like if you if you love your enemies good enough, then I'll make you my son, I'll make you my daughter. This is not an earning of your adoption. Now we know this from other places in the scripture, like Galatians 3:26. It says, You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So it draws a line. Your adoption begins at faith in Christ. Or you could go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. It says we, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Then it says this. In love, 
having predestined us to adoption as sons. So that draws a line of our adoption back to before time began. You can't earn your adoption. You're chosen before the foundation of the world and it's by faith in Christ that you become a son or daughter of God. You can't earn your adoption. And you see it even in this phrase right here. I want you to, I want you to understand this. Just think of it carefully here. Notice verse 45 does not say so that you might become sons of the Father. It doesn't say that. It says so that you might be sons of your Father. He's already said it. He's already, he's your father. And for you to live out that reality you have of adoption, to live that out, to be like your father. You know, they're saying it's like that, like father, like son. For you to be like your father, love your enemies so that you might be sons of your father. So that you might be like him, that you might imitate and be like your father. That's what's being pushed here. Now, what characteristic of God is highlighted that would compel us to love our enemies. He's saying, love your enemies that you might be like your father. But then what characteristic of God is put forward to say, look at what God's like. And that ought to compel you to love your enemies. And we see it at the, look at the rest of verse 45. Here it is. Right in the middle of verse 45. For he, to my God, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, this characteristic of God that was just described has often been called the common grace of God. The common grace of God. So let's define what is the common grace of God. It's, it's God's blessing and God's goodness towards all people, evil and good. Just and unjust, believer and non-believer, heaven bound, hell bound. It's God's kindness towards all. It's his grace towards everyone, even those that reject him. That's the common grace of God. Now, this is not the saving grace of God. That saving grace of God where, where God moves in such a way he saves your soul from death and you have eternal life with him forever. It's not that. Just because you experience the common grace of God doesn't mean you're saved. Even those who are not saved, even those that end up rejecting him to the very end and going to hell, God was kind to them. God was gracious to them. And that's the common grace of God. Luke 6.35 says it like this. I love this verse. It says that God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Think about that. God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Luke 6. 35. And that's what it says in our passage. Think about it. Y'all, he makes his son. Okay? First of all, Paul's there. It's his son. It belongs to him. And he makes his son rise and give light and give warmth and all that the, the, the sunlight does. And he gives that to the good and the evil. People that hate him despise him, ignore him, are bored with him. And yet day after day, he makes his son rise on them. How kind. He sends rain. He, he doesn't, you realize he doesn't have to do any of this. You go read the 10 plagues. Remember the 10 plagues, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and they were brought out by 10 plagues. There was a moment where deep darkness was over the land of Egypt and the Israelites had light. How'd that happen? 
You see, he can just give light to his people. He can make the sunlight only work for his people. He can give rain only to his people. But no, he makes his rain. He sends rain to the just and the unjust. How gracious is he? This is the common grace of God. I remember um, when I first learned this doctrine, I remember it helped me. And maybe it'll help you too. It helped me a lot in evangelism. And what I mean by that is I remember I would go to share the gospel with somebody and I don't know, I'd say something like, um, uh, hey man, are, are you a Christian? Do you know God? Uh, do you know Christ? Something like that. And oftentimes, especially in our area of the world, somebody would say, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm a Christian. I know God. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. Or they give a specific example. Man, I was in this wreck one time, and my car went spinning down this hill, and I should have died, but I didn't because of God. And I never knew what to do with that, because like, I'm thinking, yeah, God, okay, God's in control. He must have done that. But I don't think this, is a, this guy might not be a Christian. I don't know. How do I deal with that? And I remember the doctrine of the common grace of God helped me there. Because now I got to look at this person and say, man, you're right. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. And you wouldn't have survived that wreck were it not for God. But look, noticing that kindness of God towards you does not save you. That is the common grace of God that he gives to the just and the unjust. You need something more than that. You need to see the glorious gospel and be saved. The common grace of God. I don't want you to miss the beauty of this. Okay, It's really, really beautiful. Think about it. There was a time where we were all enemies of God. Spit in his face, enemies of God. And think about the multitude, I mean, we can't even name them all. The multitudes of joy that God allowed you to experience. You understand this. You, you and I deserved hell right then and there. We didn't deserve one more breath. But you got even more than that. You have moments of joy. When you were an enemy of God, when you were lost, you had moments of joy. Moments of laughter. The love of a family many of us had. You have taste buds where you get to taste food and it, and it tastes good to you and the joy of the taste of food. Why does God give you all of that? All you deserve in that moment is hell, is eternal destruction. This is the common grace of God to you. And not just us when we were enemies, but people are going to go to hell forever. Even the Roman soldiers that pinned him to the tree. They nailed him to a cross. Jesus died, and they went home that day. Where'd they go? Back to their families? God let them enjoy their families? God let them enjoy another meal? Maybe laughter happened. They, they got to enjoy that. They just pinned Jesus to the cross. This is the common grace of God. He's so patient and kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Don't miss the beauty of the common grace of God. And what we're called to in this verse is, therefore, since God loves his enemy, since he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, he puts it on us. Brothers and sisters, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, second reason. So the question is, why does Jesus hold his church to this standard? Number one is that we might be like God in his common grace. And two... So that his church would be separate from the world. So that his church would be set apart from the world. 
And here's what I mean. You see that in verse 46 and 47. Just look at it. What, think about what's being communicated in verse 46. Look at it. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do you see that? If you just love those who love you and not love your enemies, you just love those who love you, you're just like everybody else. The tax collectors do that. The world does that. But he's calling his people to be separate from the world. Look, look, at, look at verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He said, look, if you just greet your, you just greet your friends, you just greet those who love you back and love those who love you back. If that's all you do, you're, just, you're no different than the pagans. See, he calls us to something deeper, to love your enemies, to be like God, but also that you might be set apart from the world. Jesus' church is different, set apart, sanctified from this world. John Stott has a, a quote, and I love this quote. He says, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good Somebody does you good, you do them good. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. That's otherworldly. And that's what we're being called into, to return not just good for good. That's human. We're called to return good for evil. In other words, the, the church is called to go beyond, beyond the world standards of decency. You understand that? We're called to go beyond the world's standards of decency. This verse in verse 47. What more are you doing than others? We're called to be more than just decent humans in this world. There's something higher that Christ calls his church into. I love it if you go read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Paul rebukes the church at Corinth. You know what he says to them? He says, you're acting so human. Isn't that a strange rebuke? He says you're behaving in a merely human way, but Christ calls you to something deeper than that, something to go further than that. We're not called to live a natural life of decency, but a supernatural life like love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So once you think about that for a minute, your love that you live out toward this world, your, your prayers, your prayer life toward the world. Your, it says in verse 47, your greetings, those that you greet, that you invite in, that you welcome. Does all of that, your love, your prayer, your greetings, does it set you apart from the world or are you just a decent human being? Does it set you apart from the world? Or are you just a decent human being? He's calling us to a place of otherworldly love, otherworldly prayers, and even greetings, it says here. We need to beware of letting the culture define our standards of goodness. Don't let the culture de define that. No, no. We've got Christ gives us a Christian counterculture that defines the standards of righteousness and goodness. Number four. Last verse here is a summary statement. 
Verse 48 is a summary statement. Let's read it. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there's a connection between verse 45 and verse 48. Verse 45, so that you might be sons of your Father. That you might be like your Father. Right? Verse 48, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. They're, they're, it's the same idea here. They're pu- pushing the same thing. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not a call to sinless perfection, okay? This is not a call to sinless perfection. You know, uh, if you're a real Christian, you have a sinlessly perfect life. If you're a real Christian, it's not a call to that. I want you to remember that principle. Let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? If you interpret this as, as a call to sinless perfection, if that's what you do, then you're going to make this verse inconsistent with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 6. The Christians are described as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not those that have perfect righteousness, those that are hungering and thirsting for it. Or later on in the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus teaches us to pray like this. Father, forgive us our trespasses. Now, that'd be a strange prayer if he expected us to be sinlessly perfect. It'd be strange for him to say, when you pray, pray, Father, forgive us of our sins. So this is not a call to sinless perfection. What it is, is a summary statement, okay? It's a summary statement for our passage today about, about love, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy. It's a summary statement. Think about it. What standard of love is his church called to? What standard of love is his church called to? Not, not the world standard. Just love those that love you. Not just the world standard. But no, it's the Father's perfect love. That's the standard we're called to. This perfect love of the Father. This, this, uh, this love that is undeserved love. This unmerited love. Even when they don't deserve it, we love them. This is what Christ did with us. We didn't deserve his love. And yet he died for sinners. Now, this statement's also a summary for not just the passage we're in, but really all of chapter 5. So think about all of Matthew chapter 5. What standard of righteousness is Jesus' church called to? Not just the common decency of the world. The pagans do that. Not that. Not even the standard of the religious leaders of this time. We saw that in verse 20, right? Chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So we're not called to the standard of the world. We're not called to the standard of these religious leaders. What are we called to? The standard of, we're called to the Father's perfect standard. Be holy for I'm holy. Or as it says here, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here's the call. Grace Community Church, strive for this. Let us strive together for this standard of holiness, this standard of obedience. Strive in prayer. Pray. Kill sin in prayer. Put on righteousness in prayer. Pray to God. Don't you believe this? These are the kind of prayers that don't you know He's going to answer them? You come to God and you say, oh God, would you please make me holy? Will you make me like Christ? You think, you read your Bible and you think God's going to tell you no? These are the kind of prayers he answers for his people. Strive in prayer. Strive with the word of God. 
Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you believe that or not? Do you believe it that if you get God's word just stored up in your soul and just taking more and more of the word of God in, don't you believe that your God will make you more like Christ, make you more godly, conform you to the Father's standard? Strive for this. Strive for it in hope. This isn't just you beating your chest and you can get it done in your flesh. No, you've got promises to stand on. Think about Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. So you strive for holiness and obedience and to be like the Father with this promise that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Strive in hope, brothers and sisters. Strive in hope. But let's strive for the perfection of the Father, as it says here. Now I want to close with this thought, okay? One thought, go with me here, and we'll close with this. I want you to think about the doctrine of adoption. Isn't that amazing? That sinners like us can be sons and daughters of God? You know, justification is one thing, and it's beautiful, and it's glorious, and we can worship for all of eternity just on justification. Which means the judge of all the earth leaned forward on his bench and off the merits of Jesus said, justified, righteous, innocent. That's beautiful. But adoption takes it even further. And adoption says the judge steps down off the bench and actually adopts you, the criminal, the forgiven criminal. He adopts you as a son. He adopts you as a daughter. This is the doctrine of adoption. Okay, now, now I want you to think about this. Adoption is all over the Sermon on the Mount. Unless I missed a few, I believe it's 17 times Jesus looks at those that are disciples of Christ and he says, your father, your father, your father, your father, 17 times in Matthew 5 through 7. So the doctrine of adoption, the beautiful doctrine of adoption is all over the Sermon on the Mount. Now I want you to think about this. The section in the Sermon on the Mount that we're closing today, that we're, we're, we're passing through. We've been in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 48, which is a clear section, a clear section of this whole sermon. And I want you to think about what this sermon, excuse me, what this section of the sermon is all about. This is Jesus' law preaching. It's the law preaching of Jesus. It's Jesus uh, expositing the law. It's Jesus interpreting the law. Okay, remember that? You start in verse 17. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And then he moves in. He, he, he rebukes law relaxers. And then he moves into six examples. You've heard it said this about the law, but I'm telling you this. And he's preaching the law. So from verse 17 to verse 48, where we're finishing today, we've been in a section of law preaching from Jesus. Glorious law preaching of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. The law preaching of Jesus is bookended by adoption. Look at the very end of verse 16. He says, your father in heaven. Adoption. Look at how it ends in verse 45 and verse 48. That you might be sons of your father. That you, might be, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That law preaching of Jesus is couched in the doctrine of adoption. 
the law preaching of Jesus, him laying out his righteous standard, is couched in adoption. Now, here's what I want to close with. Why is that so beautiful? Because it is. Why is that such a beautiful reality? It's this. The standard of obedience that Jesus is calling us to is set in this context of an intimate relationship between a son or a daughter and their loving father. So this righteous standard, this law of preaching we're being called to, is set in this, in this beautiful, intimate relationship of a child with his father. It's beautiful. I, I don't want you to miss this. Christians don't obey for acceptance with God. They don't obey so that they'll be accepted by God. But through the gospel, they're already accepted as children of God. God is their father, and therefore children obey. Christians aren't called to some cold obedience to a far-off king. Now, Christian obedience is a loving father and children that love him and want to obey him. That's Christian obedience. Christians aren't antinomians. Why? They're, because they're children who love their father. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to hear every word. They hang on every word of their father. They love him. Christians aren't antinomians. And look, Christian obedience is not legalism. Can you imagine that in a family? You look at a little child in a family, and man, that boy just loves to be like his daddy. He wears boots like his daddy. He likes to dress like his daddy. He likes to do hand motions and talk like his daddy. Nobody looks at that and says, man, that family's legalistic. They say, no, that child loves his daddy. That child loves his father. Christian obedience is not legalism. It's a child that loves his father and wants to obey him. He longs to obey him. And so Grace Community Church, God is your father. He's your father. Strive to imitate him through his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for letting us meditate on these truths together. And uh, Lord, you've called us we believe it from what we've just read. You've called us to holiness. You've called us to righteousness. You've called us to, to be godly, to, be, to imitate you, our Father. And God, we ask you for help. We worship you, Lord, for the adoption that you took rebels and enemies and you made them sons and daughters, your sons and daughters through the cross. We worship you for that, Lord. God, I pray that you would make us faithful children. Make us faithful children that love your word and love to be doers of your word. Thank you, Lord. We commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.